0: So today, we are going to embark on a three-week teaching series, and the title of our three-week teaching series is this, The Empty Chair. For the next three weeks, I'm going to be teaching on the concept of the empty chair. And uh, oh, did you just whip that up, Antonio? Good job, man. I like that. So there we go. We got the empty chair. Um, Here's the goal. At the end of these three weeks, I have a very simple goal, and that is this. That every one of us would feel inspired, empowered, and equipped to bring somebody to church. That's it. We're not going to demand a whole lot out of everybody. We're just going to set one simple goal. That every one of us, by the end of this series, would walk away feeling like, you know what? I can bring somebody to church. I can do this. And here's the thing. You say, well, Aaron, why... Why are you making it so simple? Why aren't you telling us to go preach the gospel? Why aren't you telling us, you know, teach us the the Romans' road to salvation and then send us out on the street so we can find complete strangers and and share the gospel with them and lead them to Jesus? Why? And I'm going to tell you why. And it comes from my psychology background. One of the areas I focused on in psychology was bullying prevention. One of the research studies that I looked into on bullying prevention said this that if you gave students a list of four things to do, you do this, 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 and the fourth thing is I want you to stand up to the bully. What they found in this research study is that the students didn't do any of the four things. Didn't even try one of them. Whereas if they just gave the students three things to do, just do this, this, and this, and they left out stand up to the bully, the students in a high percentage tried at least one of those three things. So what was the difference in these two different uh, groups that were were being studied? Well, for, for kids that are dealing with bullying, the idea of standing up to the bully is so frightening, it's so overwhelming, that when they heard that they were supposed to do that, not only did they not stand up to the bully, but they disregarded everything else that was asked of them because it was too overwhelming. And here's the thing. We all have different personality types. God wired us all differently and that's totally okay. Some of us he wired to be really outgoing and we love meeting new people and we love we don't mind talking to strangers and we're super passionate and fired up about just preaching the gospel wherever we go. And some of us are a little more introverted and shy. We don't like meeting new people and and we really have to work up the courage to even have a conversation with somebody. So When I stand in front of the church and I say, hey, listen, everybody, we're going to do this, 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 and we're going to go preach the gospel to some people. That idea of going and preaching the gospel to some people is so scary and so overwhelming that not only are you not going to do that, you're not going to do any of the three other things either. So instead, you know what? We're going to wipe the slate clean and we're going to say, all we're going to do is bring somebody to church. That's it. That's all we're going to be equipped to do is that I can bring somebody to church with me. Why? Because if we bring them to church, they're going to experience our family. And they're going to experience our community. And we believe we've got something special here for people to experience. And when they come to church and they get caught up in our worship service, they're going to feel the power of God. And they're going to feel the goodness of God in their lives. And when they come to church, they're going to hear the gospel. And they're going to hear it from a guy who gets really excited about preaching it. So you don't have to be freaked out about doing it. You just get them to church and they'll hear it. Let's just bring someone to church. That's our only goal. And I believe that all of us could do that. Now, it might still make you a little uncomfortable and that's okay. But it's not so overwhelming that you're just going to give up and not try it. Let's bring somebody to church. So... Our passage that we're going to study today is Acts chapter 1. We're going to study verses 4 through 8. So if you've got your Bibles, pull those out. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, pull that out and open up your Bible app. And let's find the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament right after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then comes the book of Acts. Right in between John and Romans, you'll find it. And we're going to study Acts chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 4 through 8. And then we're going to take some time to talk about these verses and what they mean. Gathering them together, he, the he being Jesus, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Who's the them that Jesus is talking to? His disciples, the 11 guys who had been following him uh, for these last three years. Wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs. Epochs means seasons, right? Nobody uses the word epoch anymore. Okay, so not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So let's look at what's happening here. Jesus gathers his disciples together. This is after Jesus has died and been resurrected and has now, uh, for a good 40 days, has been appearing to his disciples showing that he has been bodily resurrected and he is alive again. And then he says to them, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem. I don't want you to go anywhere. I don't want you to do anything. You're not ready yet. I don't want you to go out and try anything. I want you to stay here until you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says, there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to fill you up, and I want you to stay here and wait for that. Now, in response to Jesus telling them that, they respond with a question. And their question is, Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, why would that be the question they ask when Jesus has told them to stay here and wait for the Holy Spirit? In order to understand this, we need to understand the perspective of these Jewish men at this time. First, at this time, Israel was under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And all throughout the history of the nation of Israel, several different times, an enemy empire had come in, in, had overthrown Israel, had taken them over, and then had not allowed them to worship God or to serve God the way that the Bible had asked them to. And whenever this happened, there was, the people were frustrated. They were, they, they, they were anxious. They, they wanted to worship God. They were tired of being oppressed. It happened with the Assyrian Empire. It happened with the, the, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire. At the time of Jesus, it was the Roman Empire. Even more recently, in the 1900s, it was the Ottoman Empire. All throughout history, these empires have come in and brought oppression to Israel. And so they were always looking for the time when God was going to deliver them from this empire and restore them as a free nation. And for these Jewish men, they thought that Jesus was the one. He was the one that was going to overthrow the Romans. He was the one that was going to set them free. And so as they're getting the idea that Jesus is about to leave, they're like, hey, Jesus, before you go, are you going to overthrow the Romans for us? Are you going to restore the kingdom? The second perspective of these Jewish men is that in the Old Testament prophecies, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was always linked to the end-time kingdom. It was linked to the perfect kingdom that God was going to establish on earth. So when Jesus starts telling these men to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, their brains immediately start thinking, end-time kingdom. The perfect kingdom of God is coming. And so they start asking Jesus, Jesus, are you is the kingdom coming? Are you about to restore Israel? Is this the end time kingdom? They're getting excited. But here's the problem. When Jesus answers them, he answers them in such a way that basically says you have the wrong focus. And what do I mean by the wrong focus? What I mean is they were thinking that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was for their benefits. That it was going to be for their comfort. That because the Holy Spirit was coming, the kingdom was also coming. And they were going to be set free. And they were going to get everything that they wanted. And Jesus' response to them is, you've got the wrong focus. And now how does this apply to us today? And what is Pastor talking about with this whole series called The Empty Chair? Because I believe that when we come to church and we see an empty chair we have the wrong focus. So let me demonstrate for you. My wife has a few items ready for me here, all right? So you come in, you've got your Bible. Ladies, you've got your purses. Or if you're a guy, you call it a man bag, that's cool. All right, so you come in, you've got your stuff, and you come to your seat, and there's an empty chair next to you. And what do you think? That empty chair is there for me to put my stuff down. So there's my Bible. There's my purse. I'm just going to spread my stuff out a little bit because that empty chair is there for my benefit, right? That's my Bible's chair. No, you can't sit there. My Bible is sitting there. Okay, so that's what we think of when we see the empty chair. And I actually got convicted this morning because I preached this message in the first service. And then between services, I looked at our seats And there was water bottles, little Dixie cups, food trash. I mean, we had only been here for a couple of hours and we were already spreading across the entire front row. So between services, I'm picking up my trash and recycling my water bottles. I'm like, geez, this looks terrible. Okay, so we like to just set our stuff down and spread out. I like having empty chairs because I have somewhere to put my stuff. So that's one way that we look at the empty chair. Mark, if you'll come help me. Here's another way that we look at the empty chair. If I come into church and Mark is sitting right there on that end seat, I'm going to sit right here in this seat, right? Because I don't want to have to sit shoulder to shoulder with somebody I don't know very well. So that chair is there to create a buffer, right? This is our buffer zone right here. This is now I'm comfortable, all right? This is... It's getting a little weird. Okay, but right here I'm comfortable. And then when we start worshiping, right, and we're into worship and our hands are up and then it's like, oh, we just touched hands. All right, I don't know you that well. Okay, so, we, and then if you get really fired up in worship, you start jumping around, you start swinging your arms around. I mean, you can catch a backhand in the face. It can get dangerous here, right? So this chair is like a safety zone, right? It's like the demilitarized zone where no conflict is gonna happen right here. So we have these ideas of the empty chair. Can we say thank you to Mark? I appreciate it. We think the empty chair is there for our benefits and for our comfort. When there's empty chairs around me, I'm more comfortable. I've got more space. I don't have to feel so intimate with people. But just like Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he's saying to us, we've got the wrong focus. So how does he answer these guys? Well, first off, He doesn't rebuke them for being focused on the kingdom. He never tells them that being focused on the kingdom is wrong. Because, in fact, I believe he was happy that they were focused on the kingdom. And we'll come back to that here at the end. But what he says to them is this. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's saying, you don't need to worry about the win. That's great that you're thinking about the kingdom, but I don't want you to worry about the win. Because if you're worried about the wind, you're just thinking of yourself. When do I get the benefits of the kingdom? When do I get the comfort of the kingdom? And then he drops the but, right? He begins verse 8 by saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. What he's saying is... The Holy Spirit's not coming for your benefit. The Holy Spirit is coming because you've got some work to do. And Kauai Bible Church, when we look at that empty chair, I don't want us to think that the empty chair is there for our comfort or our benefit. I want that empty chair to remind us we've got some work to do. God has called us to do some work, and we've got some work to do. I want that empty chair every Sunday to be a reminder We've got some work to do. And what is that work that God wants us to do? He wants us to fill those chairs. He wants us to fill those chairs. Why? Because so pastor can feel better about preaching to a fuller audience? Because we like saying we're a church of 200 better than we like saying we're a church of 100? No, that's not why. It's because God has a purpose and a destiny and a plan for every single person that he wants to fill these chairs with. But he needs us to fill the chairs. That empty chair is a reminder that we've got some work to do. So he says this. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. We're going to talk about that here in one of these next two messages on this concept of the empty chair. But he says, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Listen, guys, I believe this. I believe that as Kauai Bible Church, we're going to reach the remotest parts of the earth. Our vision at Kauai Bible Church will always be bigger than Kauai. There is a whole world out there that God has called us to reach. And I believe that days will come in the future when we will send some of you, we will send some of you to the remotest parts of the earth. Because God has put a call on your heart to go share the gospel in developing nations and to take the kingdom of God to different places. I believe that. But here's the problem, and this is where Bob McGregor got us started a couple of weeks ago when he was here and shared with us on the mission-based church. Is that we have this idea that missionaries are like superhero Christians. Right, that missionaries, man, for them to leave their home and go to a different nation and, and, and a culture they're not familiar with and to go there and begin to engage people and preach the gospel, that's, that's superhero stuff, right? Like that's, that's big-time Christian stuff. So when we think like that, we think, well, I'm not a superhero Christian, so I don't have to go do all that stuff. I'll just wait for somebody else to do it. But here's the thing, and this is what Bob was trying to teach us two weeks ago, is that we're all missionaries. Right where we're at, we're all missionaries. The ones that go to other nations, they just happen to be cross-cultural global workers, but we're all missionaries. Just because they go to another nation doesn't make them a greater missionary than you. You're a missionary right where you're at. And that's why I think Jesus started this list with Jerusalem. He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Why start in Jerusalem? Well, we can dig deep in the Bible, and we can come up with some really powerful-sounding answers, right? We can look at the prophecy in Micah that declares that the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. And so we can say, man, they're fulfilling prophecy by starting in Jerusalem, We could look at the fact that Jesus died in Jerusalem and was resurrected in Jerusalem and ascended to heaven just outside of Jerusalem, and we can say that that's where Jesus' ministry culminated, and so it makes sense that that's where the word... You know, we can get some really deep-sounding, powerful answers. But can we just keep this really basic, and can we just be really real with each other? Why did he tell them to start in Jerusalem? Because that's where they already were. That's why. Why? Why send them somebody somewhere else when they were already there? So what God is saying to us is, start where you already are. Don't feel like you've got to buy a plane ticket and fly across the ocean to go do something for the kingdom of God. Start where you already are. God has strategically placed you where you already are. So the neighborhood you live in, God puts you there on purpose. The job that you work God puts you there strategically. The school that you go to, God planned it when he puts you there. The family that you're in, whether it's immediate blood family or whether it's Hanai family, the family that you're in, God knew what he was doing when he puts you in that family. And now what he's saying to you is, start where you already are. What is your Jerusalem? What is your neighbor? As you begin to think about, well, pastor's going to ask me to bring somebody to church. Who am I going to bring? Do I need to go out and make a new friend? Do I need to go down to Big Save and start talking to a complete stranger? Like, what what do I need to do? And the answer is no. The person you're supposed to bring to church, you probably already have relationship with. They're where you already are. So let's start where we already are. So today... I just want to tackle the question, why? Pastor, why? Why do we need to fill the empty chairs? Why do we need to do this? And I'm going to give you three reasons why. Now, all three of these reasons are completely valid. And so if there's one of the three that resonates with you, then grab onto that, that one. But I believe that each of these reasons actually grows a little deeper. Maybe the first one might be the least consequential, And the last one might be the most consequential. But if the first one is the one that rings true to you, then you grab onto that. Three reasons why should we bring somebody to church. Reason number one, because Jesus told us to. Plain and simple. It's just simple obedience. If the Christian life is following Jesus, it's hearing Jesus and doing what he said, then let's just get back to some simple obedience. Jesus told us to. So we should go do it. If we look at the great commandment, it appears in three out of the four Gospels. You find it in Mark 16. You find it in Matthew 28. You find it in Luke 24. They're all worded a little differently, but they all give the same charge. Go into all the world. Preach the Gospel to all creation. Make disciples of all men. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Cleanse the leper. Raise the dead. Right? He told us to. So if you've got nothing else, hold on to just the, you know what? He told me to. I'm going to bring somebody to church because he told me to. Now the second reason, now we're going to get a little deeper and a little more consequential than just simple obedience. The second reason is this, because people are going to hell. That's why. And we don't talk about this a whole lot in church But I think we need to get back to that focus on the kingdom, which is what I talked about earlier in the message. Jesus wanted them to be focused on the kingdom. Because when we're focused on the kingdom, we care about people's eternity. And we'll start caring that people are going to hell. Now, I want to nerd out a little bit here. Hopefully, you guys will will go with me on this. But I want to talk a little bit about church history and a little bit about the doctrine of church history. So if you're a nerd like me, you might get a little excited right now. And if you're not, hopefully I share it in a compelling enough way that you at least stay interested. Okay? But I want to go way back to the 1500s, and I want to look at the time of the Reformation of the church. Martin Luther started the Reformation. At that time, there was only one church. It was like the church of the whole world. But the problem with that one church, which truly is a problem I think any time humans put their hand to something and stay comfortable in it for too long is the church got to be where it was all about keeping the people in power in power and the people that weren't in power keeping them not in power right so the leaders stayed in power the people that didn't lead didn't have access to be able to worship god and know god so martin luther started the reformation by rebelling against this church and Martin Luther started the Reformation, which opened up the church as we know it today, where all of us are free to read the Bible. All of us are free to worship God. All of us are free to have a personal relationship with God. That started with the Reformation and Martin Luther. Shortly after that, uh, and the refer- the, Martin Luther's Reformation really focused in Germany. Right? That, that was where, where his doctrine was outside of germany in some other areas in northern europe like holland and and sweden and maybe even down into switzerland they started teaching a little bit of a different doctrine and this doctrine became known as calvinism and it was known by that because one of the most popular guys who preached it was named john calvin he wasn't the only guy that preached it but maybe his name just sounded the best because all the other guys had like Swedish and Swiss names and they were really hard to make an ism out of. But Calvin really easily turned into Calvinism, right? That one made much more sense. So they called it Calvinism. What were the main tenets of Calvinism? Well, first, they believed in the total depravity of man. They believed that man at the core of his heart was completely and totally sinful. But they also believed this. They believed that God, before the beginning of time, had already chosen who was going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell. So the total number of people going to heaven was already established. It was already set before God even started creating people. And then when He created you, He knew, right? I created you guys for heaven. I created those guys for hell. And God knew that. We were either predestined to heaven or we were predestined to hell. And they believed that if you were predestined to heaven, you couldn't help but follow Jesus. When the grace of God came upon you, you had no choice. You just had to follow Jesus. And they also believed in the concept of once saved, always saved. That once you were following Jesus, it could never be taken away from you. And and you, you were guaranteed that you were going to heaven. Now, we are not a Calvinist church here at Kauai Bible Church. Now, I'm not going to say anything bad about Calvinists. You know what? There's a lot of people that love Jesus with all of their hearts, and they're Calvinists. And if you are a Calvinist, you're more than welcome to be here with us. You belong in our family. It's just we don't teach it, and we're not going to teach it. But here's the thing. So if you believe that everybody who's going to heaven has already been determined and that God's will cannot be changed then what is your motivation to do evangelism? What is your motivation to share Jesus with people? And the answer to that question is number one that we just covered because God told you to. That's it. That's your only motivation. Because otherwise, it's just like, well, I don't know. If I don't share the gospel, they're still going to go to heaven, right? God's will is going to be done, so who cares if I do it? Right? But because God told them to, and because, like I said, Calvinists still love Jesus with all of their heart, they're going to do what God told them to do. Now, in addition to Calvinism, there was this other one called Arminianism. This one was not quite as easy to pronounce when you added an ism to the end of it. But there was a guy named Jacobus Arminius. And he was a third-generation Calvinist. What I mean by that is there was John Calvin, and then Calvin's successor was a man named Beza, and then Beza trained up Arminius. So he was the third generation. But Arminius developed a belief system that did not agree with Calvinism. And here's the thing. Church history is not all rainbows and unicorns, right? There's some messed up stuff in church history. And this was one of those messed up moments. Because Arminius went to the head of the Calvinist churches at the time and asked them to consider his theology. Now, they didn't consider it until after he died. He died in 1609. They finally considered it in 1618. And when they considered it, this was their determination. It was pure heresy. And because it was pure heresy, anybody who was an Arminian was kicked out of the church thrown into prison or executed that was it and this went on for 12 years before the church finally realized wait a minute we're not being the church here we need to soften up and let the arminians in so what is arminianism then what what was the the theology of jacobus arminius that was so contrary to calvinism well first he also believed in the total depravity of man but he believed this He believed that Jesus' death on the cross was for everybody, that God wanted to make atonement for everybody, and that the grace of God would come at some point in their life, the grace of God would come to everyone. But here's the thing. When the grace of God comes, every human being has been endowed with free will that they can choose whether they're going to follow Jesus or whether they're going to resist the grace of God and reject Jesus. And every person has a choice. They also don't believe in once saved, always saved. They believe that, hey, you can start following Jesus, and if you walk away from Jesus, you're not saved anymore. Kauai Bible Church, we are an Arminian church. This is what we believe, and this is what we teach. We believe that every person has a choice to follow Jesus. So what does that mean? That means that every person, we want to give every person as many chances as possible to choose Jesus. As many chances as possible to experience the love of God, to hear the story of Jesus, to be around the people of God, so that one of those times they will choose Jesus. Why? Because eternity hangs in the balance. Because people are going to hell. So when we see an empty chair, we don't just think, well, if God's will to bring somebody into that chair, God will bring somebody into that chair. No, when we see that empty chair, we realize that eternity is hanging in the balance, and we have a part to play in that eternity. Because if we present them with a chance to know God, if we present them with a chance to experience the love of God, we're giving them an opportunity to choose to follow Jesus. And when they make that choice, it changes their eternity. Eternity is hanging in the balance. We can't wait for somebody else to do it. There is somebody that God has put in your life right where you're already at so that you would demonstrate the love of God to them, so that you would bring them to church, so that they would fill an empty chair, so that they would have a chance to choose Jesus. And if they don't choose him the first time, we're going to try to give them another chance. Because we believe that until they die, everybody has a chance to choose Jesus. Everybody has an opportunity to choose Jesus. This is a video clip that stirs my heart. No matter how many times I see it, I, I get emotional and it's hard to control. The movie is Schindler's List. If you guys have seen this movie, it's, it's about World War II. And it's, a, it's based on a true story about a man named Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler was a Nazi in World War II. And he was a very wealthy man. But as the Nazis began to exterminate the Jewish people, Oskar Schindler had a moment of awakening of his conscience. And he realized how wrong it was. And so he began to use his own personal wealth to buy the freedom of Jewish people and to deliver them out of Nazi Germany to save their lives. So he began to sell things he had. He began to use his own personal money, whatever he could. And by the end of his life, or by the end of the war, Schindler... Had set free somewhere between 1,100 and 1,200 Jewish people. He had made that kind of a difference. And yet, at the end of his life, after the war was over, the words that he spoke were this I could have done more. I could have done more. I could have sold that car, that would have been 10 more people. I could have sold that gold pin, that would have been two more people. I could have done more. I want us to have the passion of an Oscar Schindler to say eternities are hanging in the balance and at the end of my time, I don't want to say I could have done more. I could have filled another empty chair. I could have reached somebody else. The final reason and maybe even a greater depth why we should bring somebody to church is because we genuinely love them because we love them the way God loves them. Paul wrote it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul is saying, you know what? If I'm acting crazy, I'm acting crazy for Jesus. And if I'm being logical and of a sound mind, I'm doing it for the benefit of the people who are listening to me. He said, but either way, I am controlled by the love of Christ. Everything I do, I do because the love of Jesus is compelling me. And when you have that kind of love and that kind of passion, it flows out of you in a very authentic way. And that is why when we do this teaching series, we're not going to do scripts. I'm not going to teach you talking points. I'm not going to teach you the five points of the Roman road so that you can go read through a script with somebody because that just comes across as phony. There was a young man in our church that I was talking to this weekend and he was telling me, he said, you know, Pastor, the first time people tried to evangelize me, he's like, I realized I'm just your pet project. That's all I am. I'm just a check on your checklist. I don't want that to ever come from Kauai Bible Church. People are not our pet projects. We love them. We love them dearly. We love them unconditionally. Why? Because the love of Jesus has become so big in our lives that it controls our hearts. And everything we do, we do out of a passion for the love of Jesus. And because of that, we're able to love people the way that God loves them. And we're able to love people with an authenticity. So that when we do invite them to church, it doesn't feel like, hey, I've just been trying to get you to come to church all along. No, it feels like, wow, this person loves me. And because this person loves me so much, yeah, I want to go to church with them. I'll go sit for a couple hours with them to see what it is they're trying to show me. The love of Christ controls us. If Bruce and and the team want to come back up, I want to tell you about a man named Robert Pierce. Robert Pierce, as a young man in 1949, went on a missions trip to China. And while he was in China, he visited a leper colony. And within that leper colony, one of the nurses brought a young child to him and said to him, Mr. Pierce, what are you going to do about this child? Well, his heart was so stirred that he got his wallet out, and all he had in his wallet, the last of his money, was $5. And so he got $5 out and he gave it to the nurse. And he said, I want you to use this $5 for this little boy. He was so stirred that when he got home, he made the decision, you know what? I'm going to start sending $5 to this nurse every month so that every month this nurse has $5 to take care of this little boy. That man, Robert Pierce, in 1950 started a program called World Vision that is still around today and the whole premise of World Vision is that people would financially adopt children from developing nations and once a month you send a set amount of money to support that child in a developing nation. What was it about this man Robert Pierce that he was so stirred by love that he couldn't walk away, that he couldn't not do anything? The answer is actually written on the inside cover of his Bible. On the inside cover of his Bible, Robert Pierce, as a young man, in fact, he was on a missions trip in Korea when he wrote it. He wrote these words on the inside flap of his Bible Let my heart break for the things that break God's heart. And it was that prayer, a very dangerous prayer, that guided the life of Robert Pierce. Would we be willing to pray such a dangerous prayer? Would we be willing to say, God, break my heart for the things that break yours? God, would you keep me kingdom focused? Would you keep me focused and constantly reminded of the idea that there is an eternity? And people's eternity is hanging in the balance. See, I think what happens is, and and I'm just as guilty as the rest of us, that when we get into the daily grind, we focus on today. And when we focus on today, we forget about eternity. It's like, man, I just got to get through today. Man, I got to do the 9 to 5 today. I got to get through work, and then I want to go home, and, and I want to get home with just enough sunshine left that I can get down to the beach and get a paddle in uh, before I go home and eat dinner. And, and I got some grocery shopping I got to get done, and I got to get the kids to their activities. And we just get caught up in the grind, and we forget the kingdom eternity. But when we remember the kingdom eternity, that even when we're at our nine-to-five job, we're thinking about people's eternity hanging in the balance. Even when we're grocery shopping, we're thinking about people's eternity hanging in the balance. Even when we're going for a paddle, we're thinking about people's eternity hanging in the balance. And that empty chair constantly reminds us, I've got work to do. Is my heart filled with enough love that I'm going to go out and do that work? Will you stand with me today?